looking ahead to the future, it doesn't look good. By the time the year 1994 comes upon us, the world will be bleak. A large and powerful media conglomerate will control the planet and insist on every citizen wearing a little stick-on hologram triangle somewhere on their body. Imagine the horror. It's called a BIMMark, a product of the Boogaloo International Music Company controlled by Mr. Boogaloo. But you can join other fashion-conscious individuals and become part of BIM. All you have to do is take a bite of the apple. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. My name is Jeff Kelly, and welcome to the 33rd episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. On this episode, I'm going to talk about um, that, well, um, this bizarre, well, it's a musical, a rock and roll musical of sorts from 1980. Well, it's called The Apple. Now, The Apple, well, I'm sort of at a loss for words, and that's not good because this is a podcast, and it's all about words. Now, if you've seen the film, you know what I mean. If you haven't, well, I beg you to watch it before listening to this episode because I fear I will not do it justice. You can watch it on Tubi or Pluto TV with commercials. It's fine. I think you can watch it on Amazon Prime, but you have to pay, maybe. Anyway, this film, in many blogs and video reviews I've come across, is always categorized as, it's so bad, it's good. Oh, how I'm tired of that phrase. But in this case, I, I, I don't think it's correct. The apple is beyond good or bad. It's, it's in an area all its own. It's not really good, but it's not really bad. See, to watch this film, one must view it with an open mind, without expectations. You need to forget all you've heard and all that you know. In other words, just jump on the roller coaster and enjoy the ride, because the ride can be enjoyed. And if one enjoys the ride, well, how could it be bad? I read another blog that begins, This film fails on many levels. Again, I disagree, but I guess it depends on how you define failure. The question I have is, how? How could a film like this come into existence? Was it just to capitalize on other films like Saturday Night Fever and Grease? or the recent disco craze that had swept the nation in the 70s. Maybe it just wanted to be the next Rocky Horror Picture Show. That might explain a lot. It's a glitzy sci-fi disco rock and roll musical film with biblical allegories added in just for fun, while also attempting to be a heavy-handed showbiz satire. Oh, and this movie was also featured on Rift Tracks, you know, the Mystery Science Theater 3000 spinoff featuring Mike Nelson, Bill Corbett, and Kevin Murphy. And I'll be talking about the Rift Tracks version of this at the end of the show, so stick around. Anyway, 
about the movie. Nigel Lithgow, who is the producer of TV talent shows in England, shows like American Idol and So You Think You Can Dance, was the cinematographer on the Apple. He said, We must remember, this was in the 70s. It was very strange making this movie because we brought over something like 40 English dancers. We were in Berlin, and we used an all-German electrical crew, and then an Israeli production team. And we were making the movie in a factory that actually made gas bombs during World War II. It was a very, very strange atmosphere throughout. The film takes place in the far future, in the year 1994. It's a dystopian future of sorts. Oh, a quick tip for young screenwriters. If you're going to write a story that takes place in the future, give it 50 or 100 years minimum, not 14. You'll just be laughed at. Anyway, Mr. Boogaloo is the head of the powerful Boogaloo International Music label that everybody refers to as BIM. You see, BIM is coming, and you'll hear that over and over and over again. It seems that, well, this Mr. Boogaloo, well, he's in charge of the whole world. All the people in the world are required to wear this little hologram triangle on their body. That is some sort of merchandising thing for BIM, I guess. And if they don't have it, they'll be arrested or fined. Sorry, I'm going to have to give you a ticket. Why? Because you're not wearing the BIM mark. You know, it's obligatory now. Anyway, a young couple who sings folk songs, Elfie and Bibby, who are from Moose Jaw, come to the big city to play in the World Vision Song Festival. As the crowd starts to fall for their simple love song, Mr. Boogaloo, who has his own act in the competition, uses some underhanded tactics to get them booed off the stage. Yet after, he invites them to a party where he attempts to bring them into his world. Now, Elfie, he has integrity and refuses, but Bibi is sucked in. She's more than willing to drink booze and do drugs. Whatever Dandy, who's a super successful pop star, tells her to do. Here, try one of these. What are they? Just little pills. They won't harm you. <laughs> Come on, take it. Just like the biblical Eve, she takes a bite out of the big apple. Now, if the allegory wasn't obvious enough, Alfie has a dream that takes place in hell with Mr. Boogaloo acting as the devil and B.B. being seduced into literally taking a mouthful of the forbidden fruit. Bring the hors d'oeuvre, our special hors d'oeuvre, my special hors d'oeuvre, the apple. Bring the master's special hors d'oeuvre, the apple. Taste it. Magic apple, mystery apple, take a little ride. Let me be your guide through the apple paradise. So BB ends up becoming a huge pop star under the power of the evil Mr. Boogaloo, and Elfie struggles to get her back while still trying to make it as a folk singer. Now in this world, folk music is good, simple, innocent, full of peace and love, while pop music 
has a lot of energy, it's flashy, but it's only concerned with money and power. And of course, it's pure evil. And yes, this film is a musical, a rock and roll musical, I guess. And here's another tip for you young screenwriters. If you're going to write a musical, make sure you're writing music that people might like. You know, films like Jesus Christ Superstar, Hair, and even Grease were stage productions before they were films. So the filmmakers knew the musical numbers really worked. How good is the music in this film? I'll let you decide. Why am I the darling of the beam elite? Why does everyone fall at my feet? Could it be because I'm so sincerely sweet? Yes, I know how to be a master. Ooh, Cultivate the need. Grab them by the greed. Ooh, Slaves are guaranteed. When you know how to be a master. He knows how to be a master. Now, I don't want to spoil too much, but they get involved in a hippie commune, and there's a Mr. Tops who's apparently God, and he makes an appearance at the end. So, okay, I just spoiled it for you. But it's very, very weird. So that's the basic plot, but the plot really isn't that important. Now, I think that if I were to be living in this world, I probably could handle it, except for the fashion. Why in so many films about the future, fashion borders on the absurd? The premise of a film like this seems to be that the general population are just idiots. Okay, let's say you haven't watched the film. You might be saying to yourself, hey, that sounds interesting. Well, maybe. But do yourself a favor. Go watch the trailer right now before proceeding so you really know what I'm talking about. Anyway, the history of this film goes back to a man named Manaheim Golan, and I believe that's how it's pronounced. Anyway, Golan directed The Apple and also wrote the final screenplay. It was produced by Golan and Yoram Globus. Now, you might recognize the names, Golan Globus. They were the owners of the Canon Group. The Canon Group was known for buying bottom barrel scripts and putting them into production. They were responsible for the success of Chuck Norris, producing films like Missing in Action, Invasion USA, and The Delta Force. Okay, Chuck already had some successful films before this, but I still blame the Cannon Group. Some of their more notable films were The Happy Hooker Goes to Hollywood, New Year's Evil, Enter the Ninja, Hospital Massacre, Death Wish 2, Lady Chatterley's Lover, and The House of the Long Shadows. They were the type of company that would hire actors, then create a poster without even having a script, and they would use that to get financing, and once they got financing, well, then they would worry about actually writing the film. Menaheim Golan was born on May 31st, 1929, and now what is Israel? His parents were Jewish immigrants from the Russian Empire. He studied film at the Old Vic School and the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, and filmmaking at New York University. He began making films in 1970 with his cousin, Yorham Globus, as Golan Globus Productions. Some of these films were released by the Cannon Group, a company formed by Dennis Freeland and Chris Dewey. Cannon had early success producing English-language versions of Swedish softcore porn films, and then they moved into horror. 
they had titles like The Love Rebellion, Deep Inside, To Ingrid, My Love Lisa, The Beast in the Cellar, and The Blood on Satan's Claw. But by 1979, the company was in financial trouble and Golden Globus bought it for a half million dollars. In 1980, their first year as owners, they produced The Godsend, Hot T-Shirts, The Happy Hooker Goes to Hollywood, Schizoid, Seeds of Innocence, Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype, New Year's Evil, and The Apple. Now, the script for The Apple began with Colby Wright, a successful Israeli rock producer, one of the forefathers of rock and roll in Israel. He was once signed to a major label by French producer Eddie Barkley. Reich said of Barkley, I don't know why, but the guy to me looked like a villain. Now, Reich always considered himself a moral person, and he had trouble with the workings of the music industry. You know, all the backstabbing and whatnot. So he began to work on a story with his wife Iris, in which he based Mr. Boogaloo on Barkley. It was going to be a musical, all in Hebrew, to be performed on the stage. They wrote the story and all the songs, and it was a simple little story, until Menaheim Golan got involved. Colby Wright said, I wanted the story to be gray, to be Orwellian. It was supposed to be 1984, but with music. But Colby and Iris soon realized the idea of a stage play just wasn't realistic for financial reasons. Now, Colby had known Golan since he was nine years old. So they got together with him in Israel and told him the story and played him demos of all the songs they had written. Golan quickly decided that he wanted to produce and direct the film. Golan began to rewrite the script and both Colby and Iris knew they were in trouble. Colby said, The first time I understood I was in deep shit was when Menaheim said, Where's the action? Whoa, that was too much. Where's the action? Come on, it's a small movie. It's rock and roll. Then he said to me, a rocking horse, rock and roll? So what can you do? Iris said, we couldn't do anything anymore. I mean, it was in Menaheim's hands. Of course, money talks, you know. But on the bright side, they got to work with George Clinton on the music to translate it into English. Now, there was a young dancer named Catherine Nursel that was cast in the lead role. She explained it this way. The whole thing was by chance. I was going to this performing arts school in London, and one day after class, I ran into some students from my dance class who were walking away from the studio. I asked them where they were going. They told me about an audition they had heard about. It was a cattle call audition for dancers, so I tagged along. At the audition, she was spotted by Colby Wright. He said, I remember I was sitting on this ramp there, and she was among 200 other girls. And all of a sudden, I saw her. I said to myself, this is Bibby. This is exactly what I had in mind when I wrote the script. So I went to Manaheim and called him over to see her. She looks great, he said. But the problem with the girl was she couldn't sing, not one note. But Reich lied to Menahem, telling him she was a great singer. They attempted to give her singing lessons, but in the end, her singing voice was provided by professional singer Mary Hyland. Her singing was not the only problem Menahem had with her. The other was her name. He just didn't like Nursel. 
He insisted that she changed it, so she picked her mother's maiden name and became Catherine Mary Stewart. Colby said, She was so young, she was shocked. She was trembling all over, you know. This was a main role in a movie, and she had come there as a dancer. But I said, Don't worry, I'll be with you. I'll work with you. It'll be okay. So everyone went to Germany to make a film about 1994 America without a finished script. Nigel Lithgow explained, Because you could buy regular drugs over the counter in Berlin, the dancers were finding all different things. Speed and Benzedrine and poppers and everything else. You could just buy it over the counter. It was like herding cats trying to get all those dancers together. Yes, it was a strange 1970s experience. To show how strange it was, Reich told the story that while he was in London working on the music, Golan called him from Germany, insisting that he come to the set right away. He described what he saw when he arrived. Boy, I was shocked. He was shooting this part that never ended up on the screen because it was terrible. It was terrible. There were like 15 dinosaurs on the set. I couldn't believe my eyes. Metaheim told me, this is a million dollars, just this sequence. So I said, I don't care how much it is, it's ridiculous. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, I would like to see that scene. The film started out with a $4 million budget, but by the time it was done, it had ballooned to $10 million. Now, I don't have time to talk about all the actors, but one I want to mention is Vladek Siebel, who plays Mr. Boogaloo. He's wonderful in his over-the-top performance. Gentlemen, I predict our beam song is going to take this competition by storm. <laughs> One can almost imagine him with fangs playing Dracula. I do like the scenes where he turns into the devil, but he's only got one horn. I thought that was interesting. But if he looks familiar to you, that's because he was in the James Bond film From Russia with Love in 1963. And he also did a lot of other character work in film and TV, usually playing a villain. The thing I like about him in this film is from the very beginning, there's just no question that he's the devil. Just like everything in this film, nothing is subtle. Now, apparently, there's a cut scene in the movie where Mr. Boogaloo and Mr. Tops do a song and dance together. That would have been interesting. The actor who plays Elfie is named George Gilmore, and he's from Scotland, and he tries really hard to cover up his accent, but occasionally it shows through. Mr. Boogaloo, Mr. Boogaloo, surely we can sign next week. Next week, you won't be available. What do you mean? You're going to the West Coast. The West Coast? This was his only film. Apparently, he was from a Scottish rock group called the Bow Weavies, and he quit the group to do theater work. According to the IMDb trivia, he became good friends with Catherine Mary Stewart, but they lost contact around 1981. So, like, a year after this film was made, they lost contact. The movie, of course, was a huge box office failure as well as a critical failure. It often appears on lists with Heaven's Gate, Waterworld, and Ishtar. It was attacked as soon as it was released. Samir Sajum in the LA Weekly on December 4th, 1980 wrote, Menaheim Golan and Yoram Globus, the men who brought you The Magician of Lublin, among other atrocities, have seen the future and it stinks. 
Or so says their latest The Apple, a big budget musical whose only inspired conceit is using Faust and Adam and Eve as metaphors of the lives of show business. Everyone associated with this project is so hopelessly untalented and misguided that within minutes it becomes clear they even lack the false creative energy that often makes trash funny. To say that the sets and actors' makeup looks tacky is putting it mildly. The apple looks like a painted whore. Avoid it like the plague. But now it's time that we hear what some other people thought of the film, and for that, of course, we turn to Rotten Tomatoes. It gets a 27% critic score, but a higher 48% audience score. Now, since this is considered a bad film by many, I thought I'd start out with the bad reviews. Like Rich S., who gave it a half star out of five, and he wrote, Wow, words fail me. Everything about this movie is absolutely atrocious. My understanding is this is a cult classic. Really? Wonder what cult? It isn't even a decent time capsule for the era. If it could figure out what era it was trying to be, blah, worthless. Uh, you know, Rich, uh, why the half star? What kind of a film gets no stars? What is it about this film, in your opinion, that got it that half star? I'm curious. Michael R. gave it a half star, and he wrote... I have no idea what this train wreck was all about, but I couldn't stop watching it. Even a drop of acid would have not made this trip any better. Yeah, Mike, and I hope you don't mind if I call you Mike. The fact that you could not stop watching it seems to say that it should have got more than a half star, don't you think? I mean, I'm just saying. But you know, not everybody thought it was horrible. Matt M. gave it five out of five stars, and he wrote... Everything Can't Stop the Music should have been, and oh, so much more. To paraphrase Patton Oswald, the apple is hot, wet, gay, and on fire all at the same time. I can't say, Matt, that you are wrong because I've never seen Can't Stop the Music, but if Patton Oswald says it's okay, then it's okay. HV gave it four stars, and he or she wrote, A Great Weird Little Musical. It's actually quite 70s feeling, although it was from the 80s. It's very stylish. The good story and the music is great. I really like this movie, and I highly recommend it. And just for the record, Edge is a Rotten Tomatoes super reviewer. Whatever that is, so his opinion must count for something. Though I will point out that although it was released in 1980, which is barely the 80s, it was actually filmed in the late 70s, so... We might want to count it as a 70s movie. Now it's time to talk about the Rift Tracks version. Now this is one of those films that I watched from beginning to end without being bored. But of course, the first time I watched it was with the Rift Tracks commentary. Ah, remember when the Apple Mania swept our vague dystopian future? Thanks, Bill Corbett. The thing about this film on Rift Tracks, and, and I love Rift Tracks, there are a few films that I only will watch with the Rift Tracks commentary. Can you say Star Wars prequels? Anyway, for this film, I almost think the riffing's unnecessary. I mean, when I watched it, the Rift Tracks version, I was so transfixed on the film itself and its strangeness that a lot of the jokes went by me without noticing. So I had to watch the Rift Tracks version again. 
And I would suggest, if you haven't seen this film at all, watch the original first, then watch the riff tracks. You might be better off that way. But you know, every now and again, there's a movie that Riff Tracks does that I just don't think works well for Riff Tracks. And I think this is one. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some pretty funny stuff here, but it's not that laugh-out-loud Riff Tracks like when I watched Birdemic or Samurai Cop. Even when I watched it the second time, I never found myself laughing really loud like I've done in past Riff Tracks episodes. But... But, but, you know, let's hear a couple of the lines. Do the BIM. I most certainly will not do the BIM, even if it's something fantastic. Not until all of you change clothes, anyway. She owes BIM Incorporated $10 million. $10 million. $10 million. Yes, $10 million. $10 million, you say? $10 million. Everyone quit saying ten million dollars! Let's go! Why am I the darling of the female? Oh no, clueless white guys doing reggae. Did we learn nothing from 311 and Sublime? Your name is Bibi. Yes. If you know my name, you must know Alfie. Yes. He's the doofus with the weird accent, right? Here, take my hand. Come on. Don't worry, it's not my wipe in hand. We belong to one another. I bought you on eBay for 30 bucks. Crazy world of Arthur Brown, how's it going? Just look at this joint. Yeah, those were Richard Nixon's first words when he arrived in hell, too. I love it. It was an earthquake. Twas a wee one outside of Glasgow, aye. Are you ready to rock? Yeah! Are you ready to have one of these Granny Smiths I bought on sale from Kruger? Yeah. Uh, sure, okay, I'll, I'll, yes. I'll take it. good. My dear Tops, you know that is impossible. The world simply cannot exist without me. Let's give it a try. I think we'll get along all right without a mincing, ambiguously European demon with only one horn. And although this wasn't one of my favorite episodes of Rift Tracks, it's still worth watching. I mean, every Rift Tracks is worth watching. There's still some pretty funny stuff there. This is the greatest moment of your lives. There it is. Directly ahead, a body of land uplifted by volcanic eruption a hundred million years ago. The land where monsters lived. Yes, you're heading out of this world. By jet airliner, by hydroplane, by helicopter, into the wildest of all jungles, into the forbidding headwaters of the Amazon. Here is the most amazing of all possible worlds. A little bit before I go... I've read in quite a few places that there's an alternate cut of this film. On Wikipedia, it says, In a cut, in a two-song prologue of the film named Paradise Day, Mr. Tops creates heaven and carves the first human, Elfie, out of rock, sending Elfie to Earth to meet Bibby. Anyway, I'd sort of like to see that cut. I read an interview with somebody who saw the alternate cut and says that the film makes a bit more sense if you see it in its entirety. I don't know about that. Hopefully someday it'll become available. Anyway, next week I'm going to do something different. 
I'm going to talk about all those lost world films, you know, ones where people go to a planet or find an island, and on that island or planet, there's prehistoric creatures running around, and usually by the end, something destroys the whole civilization of these magnificent monsters, that type of thing. There's a lot of them out there, and we'll see how many I can find and talk about. I hope you'll join me. Now listen up. We have a Facebook page, and I'd love to read your comments on it. It's called Celluloid Days. I would love if you joined it. I also have a Twitter account. It's at Celluloid underscore Days. You can leave me comments there as well. I post on a regular basis. I'm also looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. And you can contact me at my email address. That's daysofcelluloid, all one word, at gmail.com. And if you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back next Monday with the talk on dinosaurs. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. Multi-pest. Uh, multi-pest. You know it's multi You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. The high court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time.